Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Whether you need a battery for your truck, or a battery for your trail camera, or a specialized battery for your rangefinder, or a crazy toy that you bought for your kids, Interstate Batteries has got you covered. Stop into a local Interstate Battery retail store, talk with a specialist, get the battery that you need, and go on about your day. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting, the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet, chasing bear. Mike Yancey is a longtime bowyer and primitive archer. Mike is an expert in the field of making self bows. He also sells all types of supplies, primitive supplies for archery stuff. Mike teaches classes for primitive bows, making primitive bows, and Mike is a longtime trapper. And we have a very fun, information-filled conversation with my friend Mike Yancey of Pine Hollow Longbows. The Western Bear Foundation. These guys are fighting the good fight for conservationists, for hunters, and for bears out west. These guys are a nonprofit hunting conservation organization and they're membership driven, which means your membership adds mass to what they're doing. That's how they raise their money. They're good guys. Check out a membership with the Western Bear Foundation. It's going to be worth your time. DU Hunting Supply. Buddy Woodbury and his team, they are houndsmen and houndswomen. I have an alpha package from them. 
with a TT15 collar and these are this is a track and train system which means it has the ability to track the dog but it also has the ability to stimulate the dog for training purposes you can get your alpha and your collar you can also get all your other dog related needs whether you got a yard dog a squirrel dog a bear dog a hog dog a quail dog a senile dog whatever you need if it's a dog buddy and du hunting supply can help you check them out Check them out on all their, uh, all their social media channels, and they have a podcast, the DU Hunting Supply Podcast. Check them out. Man, tomorrow morning, I am leaving to go down to Bait Bears, and we're going to be using Northwoods Bear products. I have used them for years and years. It creates an incredible scent attractant at all your baits. Even if you got quality bait, you need commercial scent. If you're, if you're trying to make your energy and efforts the absolute best that they can be okay you don't have to have commercial sense to draw on a bear anybody would know that if they understand bears but if you're gonna go through the effort and it is a lot of effort to bait a bear might as well make it the best best scenario possible and that is to leave a loud scent footprint that's going to draw bears from further that's going to attract more bears and northwoods bear products will do that for you check them out at northwoodsbearproducts.net bear hunting magazine man we're the only print bear hunting magazine in the world if you want to support this podcast what you could do is subscribe to bear hunting magazine and check out all our cool merch our bear grease hats and bear hunter hats are probably some of our most popular we have those now in first light fusion Um, some of those were on back order we're now getting those hats out and we're getting more in so check out all our merch hats stickers dvds patches t-shirts bear-hunting.com subscription magazine we got combo packages too where you can get a subscription to the magazine a hat and a dvd lots of different options check it out you're going to enjoy this podcast with my friend mike yancey drop that much yeah lean back up and you just feel like an idiot you're sitting there like how did i miss him that far and then you see <laughs> what he did you know it, they're not there oh man <laughs> oh great well mike uh i've got i've got mike yancey with me and uh colby colby moorhead the bear techs with us here too yep mike how many times have you been to africa you were just telling a story about Africa. Yeah, three weeks. I've been uh, took a two week trip once, but I've been actually on safaris there twice. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. We were just talking about. Uh, we were just talking about. I was telling Mike about how I'm. I'm moving back to the compound this year, because I've focused on a trad bow so much. I just. Uh, I don't know. It, it's not a particular reason. I just decided I was going to shoot the compound this year, but. Why that's relevant is Mike Yancey is, uh, we've known each other for probably 10 years. Longer than that now. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. And uh, you are, uh, you're for sure one of the leading, the national experts on self bows. Yes. Making self bows, primitive archery. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if someone looked at me shooting a recurve, and a laminated longbow and thought that I was a primitive hunter. <laughs> Mike Yancey makes 
me look like a like I'm shooting a rifle uh, <laughs> with the with the technology and the kind of stuff you're using, Mike. But man, thanks for coming up here. Oh, you're, uh, here. you know, when I think about you, Mike, you're like um, you're the real deal, man. Like you're a wealth of knowledge. What you've chose to focus on, I mean, you're you're an expert inside of it, and I always appreciate having people like that. Uh, in my repertoire of, of friends, uh, just, you know, I just have a ton of respect for you with all that you're doing. I mean, you've taken it to the bare bones of primitive archery all the way down to making bows, mm. making your arrows, cutting, you know, uh, turkey feather fletchings. Sure. Um, now, do you flint nap? I can struggle along and make tools, right. but not hunting quality points. Okay. And that's one thing... Uh, I guess I was a butcher too long. I don't like getting cut. Yeah. And when I flint nap, I get cut. So yeah, I, yeah. I draw the line. And on my primitive deal, I kind of draw the line on uh, string material okay. and arrowhead material. I want the very best. That I makes can sense. Get. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I'm very particular on that arrow flight. And uh, I like modern shafts. Uh, I don't have a problem with guys that want to use con- uh, carbons, even with a self bow. You know, yeah. they, they will work out of such a wide range of different bows. Well, I, I like that philosophy. You know, to me, that if you're, you know, there's there's just certain sectors of anything we do that we decide what we value. Mm-hmm. So I like that you can make a self bow, which uh, we'll describe what that is later. Sure. But then you can also say, well, hey, I'm not, I'm not gonna categorize my arrows in the same category as that you know find a way to make it limiting and enjoy it but still make it an effective tool for hunting has to be yeah yeah you have to be ethical about it there's some guys that even choose to shoot traditional that really probably shouldn't you know it's not a cool little thing that you want to do it's a commitment to the effort that it involves it's not a hindrance once you get to that point you know but you know right. the commitment you've shot traditional for a lot of years and it's a um, it's almost a way of life that yeah. once you get there you know it, it's a method hunt you know and and i like that but it's uh i've never heard that terminology what do you mean by me- i think i know but tell me what you mean by method hunt you kind of go through the stages in your hunting, you know, where you uh, you want to kill a bunch, you want to kill a big one, and then you want to kill yeah. it with the method. And to there me, I've been hung on that for so many years. Uh, I've put books, animals in a book. That's not that big a deal to me. Uh, I'm more shot selective than I am animal selective. But mm-hmm. the method is what I like. I, I love reading about these old timers that uh, we wouldn't be here today without them. And they had such a... At their time, that was the only way to do it, probably, you know, when the flintlock guys, you know, in that era. Yeah. But uh, just the different methods, and a guy will study the history, and you, you kind of become part, it becomes a bigger part of your hunt, especially when you make it yourself. You know, it's yeah. uh, that method is a, a large part. Yeah. It's a, it, it makes it a year-round deal where if you really like bear hunting, there's nothing more fun than uh, the method. Uh, I went through the self-bow deal where I wanted to kill them all with self-bows, and then I've killed them with recurve and then with flintlocks, and now it's, uh, you know, it, it adds every animal that I hunt. Yeah. That method is more important to me right. than, than the quality of the animal. Right. That's, a good, that's a good descriptor. That's a good way to describe it. And, uh, you know, really, everybody's doing that at some level, or not everybody, but most people, because even with a compound, guys are choosing that over 
a more technologically advanced weapon, sure. but you've just narrowed it down to just right. the, the the core, you know, ultimate primitive method when you're using a self bow. Yeah. But Mike, give me a little bit of history about yourself. You grew up right here in Western Arkansas. Is that yep. right? Yes. Um, right on within a mile of the Oklahoma line, right on the, you know, right on Arkansas, Oklahoma line. And uh, are, are you down there around uh, where that Thomas Sparks buck was killed? Do you know the Arkansas state record that was the biggest typical in the southeast? That was for just, like yeah forty years. That was out of Evansville Natural Dam area. Just oh, okay, yeah, okay. just north of me a little ways. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I, those are the the mountains that I hunt right there. Yeah. 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 That's where I was raised, and and we're fortunate in this area that we live here in Arkansas. We've got everything that a guy needs to make primitive bows. You know, it's yeah. This is the historical range of the Osage trees, and right. We've got flint. We've got. Hey, cane. when Mike Yancey walked up to the global headquarters. <laughs> He was walking up, and I said, hey, Mike, and he was eyeing my Osage orange tree out here, man. He was wanting to cut it down. I could tell. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bad Typical bowyer. I was like, hey, man, I'm up here. I'm up here. Don't look at my trees. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm interrupting you, Mike. No. Tell me. Okay, so you were raised here. Yes. Would you come from a hunting family? Yeah, my dad hunted. He, uh, he bow hunted a little bit when I was a kid, but he just... Uh, he never took it to the level that I did. I was just yeah. always fascinated with the uh, the arrowheads, you know, that you can find here. My grandma would find them in her garden and give them to me. Yeah. And that connection of finding those and wanting to learn how they made that stuff uh, from the time I can remember. Uh, I had never shot a self-bow or even seen one until I made one hmm. and uh, and just started. I didn't have anything to compare to, you know. Yeah. The books were just kind of starting to come out on making those, and it got to be a big thing, you know, about 25 years ago. And now there's there's no secrets. Anybody can learn how to do it. Yeah. But that's what got me started, and then it just evolved into a business that has just so been way you life. can so you can trace back kind of the origins of this of of you liking primitive archery to when you're a kid finding airheads. Sure. Really. So you yep. picked that up as a kid. Did you have anybody, Mike, that interpreted that for you? Like I, I've like, did you have a a dad or grandpa or your grandma that maybe would have been like, wow, look at this airhead. Cut because I say that because um, I find in my life that I trace back a lot of the things that I value mm -hmm. to very small things that people I respected said. You know, like, because some people can pick up an airhead and just be like, oh, airhead. Yeah. I mean, like, I've had people give me airheads before and I was like, why are you this is an incredible thing keep it for yourself you like and i took the arrowhead because um, they had, but the point was they had no value of it but anyway is that a fair question did or did you kind of come up with that on your own like this is a valuable thing it was probably on my own like i say my grandma always gave me those points and arrowheads and stuff that she found but the fascination was there from the very first time and i've got every one i've ever been given by her and the ones that i found over my lifetime and the places that I hunt, it's amazing that I'll find stone tools or points, you know, when I'm hunting. It's yeah. just history repeating itself, and it's so neat to go to a place, you know, sometimes even in a different country, that you'll find tools that they're basically using the very same stuff that I am today. Just that connection is still there. Yeah. And that the mountain man era, the fur trade era, that, that fascinated me from the time yeah. I was, you know, 12, 13 years old, and it, it never left. You know, I just, 
they settled this country, you know, and the bear hunters were a big part of that. Yeah. The, the trappers yeah. were a big part. So it's, uh, I don't know, there's a deep connection there. Whether it goes back yeah. to an- ancestors, I don't know. It could be, but I've always had that an understanding of it. You know, it all made sense to me. I, yeah. It's not something that, you know, I couldn't work on a car for anything, but I understood how to make a gun and a bow. You know, it, yeah. just, it was easy for me. Yeah. Mm. Do you have a pretty good stone point collection oh yeah from from the beginning of time to the more crude modern stuff you know really yeah the, is all stuff you found or do you buy stuff i never buy it just find it yeah and really? it's crazy how the earlier stuff is the better stuff the mm. further they went the worse they got really tell, tell me what you mean by that the quality the like quality, the, the, the points not the material but like the the technology no just the um the, the it's almost like the, the craftsmanship and the effort that they put into them. It's like the the older, earlier points, the craftsmanship and the quality was there where the the more modern they got, it's like they just quit relying on the craftsmanship and the, the quality's hmm. not there. They had, to, they had the availability to the same materials. Huh. It's just uh, less Have quality. you ever found a Clovis point here in Arkansas? I have. It's really? not. They're fluted. I wouldn't actually call them Clovis uh, they're close, more like Dalton's uh, okay. that that time period. Okay. But I've got several fluted points that I found. So you're talking as old as they get when yeah. you're talking the fluted stuff. So describe what a fluted head. T- describe what that means and about the time frame that that would be. Yeah, at least six thousand years ago, but, but older than that. And it's a um, when they made those points, they would take a a way of percussioning a flute, uh, a long flute that runs right down the whole length of the point. And they, they look crude, but that's the way they hafted them onto those atlatl. So it's a so it's a longer point. And so a fluted point means that... It's kind of hollowed there out was, the center. There was impact percussion that chipped off a big sliver vertically down on the, the point as opposed to like horizontally. Like right. a lot of times you think about flint napping, you think about hitting the point on the side, yeah. like chipping stuff off to the east right. and west. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that, is that right? Yeah, those are side notches. They they did them on, uh, either on the side or the base, but on the Clovis, they weren't. They were right. they, they had that flute that run down it, both it sides. It narrowed down the point so that they could put it into a wooden shaft. And not have a such spear a spear. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. And that's what, those are some of the oldest, that's the oldest technology of, of stone points right. in North America. Mm-hmm. Well, Clovis, Dalton. Yeah. 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 It's pretty incredible. You know, time is so deceptive because, like, we live in 2020, mm-hmm. and we just think this is normal. Yeah. That we, you drove here from 50 miles away. You, you know, like, we just, it's just, we just have this assumption. And it's amazing to me how easily we become, like, Ungrateful is probably the wrong word, but like just take for granted what we have because most of humanity, when you look at the time frame that humans have been on the earth, this is like a really short experiment where we have the technology that we have. I mean, most of the mankind has been fed by stone points. I mean, especially with time. Now, Considering the Earth now has almost seven billion people, perhaps we're starting to oh because the Earth population was so slim. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, like, sure. but time-wise, most humans have been fed 
by stone points above agriculture, above what we've been doing for the last couple thousand years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. really last thousand years if we're talking about semi-modern technology. Anyway, incredible. It really is incredible stuff. Yeah, we uh, we think we know it all now, but literally life as we know it didn't really exist till like the last 150 years. And then if you go back maybe even 300 they were doing just what we're talking about now. You know, it's yeah. not been that long in the scheme of things that life was like what we're talking about from the beginning of time till just the last few hundred years. Things has really changed. Why does this stuff fascinate us, Mike? Because it, it, everything you're saying, I mean, it's the same kind of stuff that I think fascinates a lot of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, why, and I always ask people this because I try to answer it for me. Mm-hmm. Why is it important? Because there's some people that would be like, you know, the past is the past. Yeah. What, you know, a lot of people, most people maybe, but hunters would be a higher percentage of people that would value the past. But like what, to you, what value does it have? It's respect. I think it it involves the animals that we hunt, pursue, there's a level of respect there for them, not uh, not idolizing them, not worshiping them in any way. It's just right. a, it's a level of respect, you know. And it's uh, I, I think the uh, the history of it and the method of it is, uh, and the animals are worthy of doing things the way it's always been done. And when you research all that and you have that connection with it, um, yeah, you, you can take a Matthews or a Hoyt and shoot golf ball size groups you know at 50 yards and that is very good and you know when you owe that to the animal but uh they're all just like they're cold as a fish but you take a a wood bow that you've made you've cut the tree everything came from your area or whatever if you trade for it it don't matter the point is is the level of commitment to the sport and the connection with it and it all becomes alive almost the uh mm. you're you're taking trees that were live you're cutting them and seasoning them you're using rawhide snake skins whatever you want to use it's all natural it's all uh renewable and uh, there's a connection there with the the commitment while you're doing it uh used to when i was uh a kid, I, I was making my own arrows, and you know, I'd sit there at the coffee table in the summertime and uh, and fletch arrows in the summertime. You know, it was just part of the hunt, you know. But yeah. when you go to that next level and start making your own stuff, it it adds a whole different aspect to it. And uh, yeah. I think a lot of people miss that uh, that boat. And as outdoor riders, I think a lot of times we're our own worst enemy because. Those big companies, they pay the bills, you know, yeah, and they right. are the ones that are advertising. My little company, you know, I do advertise, but as a whole, most of the primitive sports, they they can't advertise. So it's not big money. It's no, such a it's such a it's small piece of the pie. It's a very small piece, and it always right. will be. So uh, people are easily led by advertising. That they right. think to kill that deer, or that bear, they have to have this camo, this bow, this gun, right. and um, they miss the fun. Their things don't make you happy, and things don't make you successful. It's yeah. the, it's your ability with that equipment. Not that there's anything wrong with those kinds of bows, you know. Right. I, I shot them for years too. You know, I went through a phase. Um, 
I got rid of a recurve in the early 70s, late 70s, and started shooting a, a bear whitetail hunter, one of the most crudest yeah. uh, compounds ever made. But at, at the, the time, time, at it was, the time, it was, uh, you know, was like something. going to the moon. Yeah. And yeah. I thought, boy, this is a ticket. And so yeah. for years, I killed a lot of stuff with compounds, but just went back to the old stuff and love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, when you, your, your, your first answer to why you're attracted to, the old way was respect for the animal. Mm-hmm. As you said that, I was uh, I'm kind of connecting that to kind of the the well, I, I I recently read about how moose and elk and some of these really primitive ancestors of the modern big game that we have in North America, most of it almost all of it came across the Bering Strait mm-hmm. during, you know, when the when the glaciers lowered sea level and there was a connection between Siberia and Alaska. And these animals came across. And at the same time, humans were coming across. And one philosophy, one, one idea is that humans, you know, totally killed out the big megafauna, like the, like the, the, the woolly mammoths, um, all the, really big game because at that exact time that humans made it into North America, you know, 15, 17,000 years ago, all these big cares, these, this big megafauna died off, but all the animals that had evolved with humans over in Siberia, they say had already, I mean, the human was a natural predator of those animals and they had already adapted ways to survive human predation. Mm. Just like if you released a wolf predator into, you know, a sheep pen and the sheep <laughs> never, it never had wolf predators, you could knock them out. Mm-hmm. I'm connecting that back to you saying it's a respectful way to hunt mm. because like it's, it really is like, you know, almost like natural, a more natural method of human predation. Is it, you know, because it's, it is quite unnatural for a predator to be able to attack game from 500 yards. Mm. I mean, like there's nothing that can do that, but to be able to get within 20 yards, probably max with a self bow. I mean, for most people yeah, or even closer is where you're at like that those animals have developed strategies to evade that close range predation anyway i'm, I'm kind of just layering what you're saying because i like that but i was taking it back a step further to like why is it respectful to hunt that way you know yeah. uh and and i think that's that would be one connection point is that it's uh it's it's we've been hunting that way a long long time Sure. So, just a thought. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, it's still effective. You know, a lot of people think, you know, uh, they'll look at them at a show. You know, I'll have a table full of bows. And, you know, they, they think they're cute little toys. They don't realize right. how effective they are. And, you know, truthfully, you know, you've shot traditional for a long time. And you know what they can do. A good made self-bow is within just a few feet of a good okay. recurve, you know, or a good longbow. Yeah. Laminated yeah, yeah. glass bow. They're not that, there's not that big of a disadvantage okay. they're, they're from, really, a, from a standard traditional yeah, yeah, yeah from yeah, traditional yeah. to primitive it's uh there's a very fine line and in yeah. fact some of the the better made primitive bows are better than some of the low end uh production type glass glass bows yeah yeah it's amazing yeah 
Um, tell me, uh, let's go ahead and define what a self-bow is. Sure. Most people consider it one piece of wood. You know, cut a tree, split it, and it's made from a piece of wood. They will still consider it a self-bow with a sinew backing or a rawhide backing and snake. Of course, the snake's just for looks. It doesn't add any performance or durability. But uh, some people even will consider a self-bow laminated like a board bow with a bamboo backing okay, or that type of deal. I really don't. I think I consider that more of a composite. And But a self-bow would strictly be one, one piece of wood. One piece of wood. So yep. like and, stock removal. Like if like you're starting out with a block and you're removing everything that's not a bow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're following those annual growth rings on the, on the tree, the way it grew. You go through the sap and the bark, take all that off. And then you follow one continuous growth ring from end to end. And that's what keeps it from breaking. And mm. then you start removing the thickness to get the poundage that you want. Yeah. And it's, they've been, they've been doing it that way ever since they started making bows and nothing has changed. They, they couldn't get it any better than, um, than they started started out with it's amazing the yeah. the different areas of the country like the the western plains indians they didn't have access to a lot of the woods that we did here in the south and the east and uh all of that so their bows were shorter almost all of them were sinew backed where our bows were longer and unbacked because of our humidity and then we had the availability of good wood so hmm. longer is better if you can get it but they couldn't so yeah th there's different designs and then like the Mongolians, you know, they about conquered the world with those little composite horn bows. But uh, that's what they had available to them. You know, they were sinew yeah. horn and just a real thin little wood in the middle. But, yeah. you know, they could shoot forever with them, and they were very good. They, Like I said, they about conquered the old world with them. Yeah. So the, the self-bows that you're making, is that a direct replication of Native American bows? Used to be. I started out with the old Cherokee method. Tell me, tell me about that. Yeah, uh, Al Heron, he uh, is from Tahlequah, and his wife and him are both uh, of the Cherokee Indians. Uh, he was trained by the old masters, and when he wrote his book, there was a big falling out. They uh, they didn't want the old elders didn't want those methods passed on. Oh wow! And, and, or outside of yeah. That, yeah. And had he not done it. It would have been lost, and in fact, the Cherokee Nation has sent a guy to me to teach him how to make bows, so Is he could teach right? the the Cherokee kids. Yeah, wow. so it would have been lost if Al hadn't have written that book, hmm. and and he's still alive. He's uh, everybody owes him a big favor, you know, for for doing that. You know him? Yes. Yeah, I've interviewed him on articles before. Yeah, and a great guy. So, uh, but that's the book that I learned from, and it's what a, book is that? It was called uh, Cherokee Bows and Arrows. Cherokee Bows and Arrows. By Al you Harry. sell it on your website? I do. Yeah, yeah I thought you did. But it's a good method, and that's the one I started with, but then I developed a style of my own after that. Okay. Well, tell me about the, that. What does that bow look like? <laughs> the Cherokee bows <clears throat> are long. They were big people. They had a long draw length, so most of them were, you know, in the high 60s as far as length, you know, probably even some 72-inch bows maybe, but wow. they're typically just a long, straight bow. No no reflex added to them. They were just a straight kind of a D-bow, what they would call them, and a lot of them even bent through the handle. But uh, they did build a handle bow, which was very rare 
for um, the natives, most of them didn't build a real rigid handle section. So it just looked like it just like the same consistency all the way through the on boat. the Debo's that bent through the handle. They were just the same thickness all the way so through. There was almost no, like you board. would look at it and it just looked like a bent stick, right? But they did build handle bows, and that's what they were famous for. What, really. Okay, what kind of what was their preferred wood? Osage. Yeah, okay, Osage is, is the Osage tree throughout the southeast? Native in the Arkansas River Valley and the Red River Valley. That's where well, it's Now, the native. Cherokees primarily came from... The Carolinas. Carolinas yeah. yeah. So Georgia. what were they using yeah. back there? Same. That they were trading it. for it? That and black locust. Yeah. Is that right? Yep. So they were making self bows out of black locust. Yep. Is that... But it's not as good as Osage I don't like orange. it. It doesn't have the compression qualities that the Osage does. What so does that mean? It'll crush on the belly. On the on the compression side, the side that's bending to you, okay. it doesn't have enough strength. It, okay, uh, but you know it'll it'll make a bow. But right. I would do a lot of other things. When did those tribes begin to have the technology to make a bow, a self bow? I guess they always did. Well, I've heard. Uh, I was thinking that uh, you know because they use atlatls. Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking it was like twenty five hundred years ago that, that they went from the, the atlatl to the bow. Yeah. That's probably about right. Twenty five to thirty five hundred. Okay. Yeah. It's it's. I'm not an expert on that. Somewhere in that range. So I mean, there was a time period when all the tribes here were pretty much using atlatls and spears. Yeah. And then, what's amazing to me is that all across the globe, kind of at the same time, exactly, everybody got this technology mm-hmm. of a stringed bow. Yeah. Which is hard to imagine how news spread or how I. I, I what do they call it? Uh, there's a term. There's a term used to describe, and I think it's. I don't even want to say. I can't remember. But where basically technologies spawn at the same time, but they're not connected. But it's just because of the 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 technology beneath it. So you would look in like archaeological records, and you'd think, well, these people had to have communicated. Mm. But but they didn't. It's just that it was kind of this natural progression of just like human thought almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it, I think it's called co covert. Ah, I can't remember what it was. Anyway, well, they've associated they that associated that with like uh, Tesla and uh, Edison with electricity. Both right. of those guys came up with that idea at the very same time unbeknownst each other right and it's been all through history and like you say in the arrowhead type deal right they convergent evolution maybe what it's called yeah spontaneous knowledge i guess but they uh they they learned it you're right that the points they made them all over the country at the same time and i'm sure to a point they were in contact some is just a little slower but even in europe they were building um they're finding stuff that is just like ours at the same level of uh, in archaeology. They're digging stuff that was being done at the same time it was done here. Right, and it's it's nuts that, that all over the world they were doing the same things right. at the same time. Right. So these so these Cherokee bows were made. Um, they they were a longer bow, mm-hmm. and and then. Let's see. Uh, is, is Osage Orange like the El Primo self bow material? To me, it is. Uh, you can use some other woods, and like the in the 
Pacific Northwest. They have Pacific U. Okay. And the, the English longbows were famous for being made out of U wood. And, okay. and it's good, but it doesn't have the durability and the ruggedness of Osage. You can throw an Osage bow out of a tree. You can go swimming with it. I mean, you can do It's tough. Golly, and that, it will just last forever, especially with the grease finish. You can take some bear grease and beeswax and heat that wood till it won't suck up anymore. And I really think you could not wear it out if it's made right. Really? In, in a lifetime. You, you just gave me out. a new usage for bear grease I that I was unaware of. I use it. I'm adding it to the list. I yeah. use it for have ye- used it for years. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Man, Osage okay, when I built this when I built this house, this property has a ton of Osage orange on it. Well, I see it's, it. It's secondary. <laughs> I think this place was cut, selectively cut, 40, 50 years ago when this was just kind of, you know, farm country. Mm-hmm. And so they left all the junk trees, you know? Yep. And uh, around here, you do that, you're going to get some Osage orange. When I built my house, the guy that was doing the footing, I've got a big Osage orange right there and the one you were eyeing over there. And the guy said, you're going to want to get rid of those. <laughs> and I said, why? And he, he just said, trust me, you're going to want to get rid of those. And I've got multiple Osage orange stories. Number one, this tree's gotten so big that it overhangs my driveway. And all of my vehicles have dents in the hood mm-hmm. because of these, we call them horse apples, Osage orange fruit. Mm-hmm. They're about as big as a softball and weigh about a pound and a half. Mm-hmm. Falling from 40 feet up, dead center of a hood will leave a dent in it, number one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For years, I blamed my kids for bouncing the basketball. <laughs> really, the boys playing ball all the time, and I would have these dents in my hood, and I'd get upset with the boys, and then one day I was out there, and bam! So there's number one. Number two, they that wood is so incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. Like if you, uh, one time I was on my tractor, Mike, and I was uh, digging something with the tractor, and I backed up, and the, that tree right there had a an old limb that was only about two inches big that was hanging off, and I T-boned that limb right into the dead center of my shoulder blades while mm-hmm. I was on the tractor. And any other, it was a dead limb, mm-hmm. any other limb would have broke. And I thought I was impaled. I was expecting <laughs> to look down and see an Osage orange sticking out of the front of my chest. Yeah. And anyway, that stuff it won't rot. I've no. got I've got posts on this place, Osage orange posts that were here probably from the forties, maybe thirties, that are still functional posts. Right. And that's why I cut down an Osage orange and I'm using it for posts out in my on my barn. Yep. Incredible stuff. It is. <laughs> yeah. Now you go to Texas to get all your stuff, don't you? No, I get most of it out of Missouri. Oh really? Uh, yeah. Okay. But so you travel to get staves. Mm-hmm. I actually have staves. Right. I actually have loggers that that know what it is and they can get more for it out of bow wood than they can for the for the oak that they're usually cutting for timber, you know. So oh, okay. They'll they'll grade it for me and select it and I've got some pretty good loggers over the years that I've got a working relationship with that keep me in bow wood and then i cut as much as i can but the, yeah. the demand that i have i can't physically cut enough myself and that stuff like you're talking about being so tough if you ever cut one commercially to get any number you can take a limb that'll be as big around as a golf ball and it will hang up on another tree it won't break the stuff will and i mean it's you'll, just hard you, to handle you'll have to cut a half acre of trees to get one osage to fall yes. because they'll hang and everything and they just won't break 
but they're, it's amazing wood. But they're, it's the they're, when you cut them with a chainsaw, you almost wouldn't believe if you hadn't see if you if you didn't see it with your own eyes, you wouldn't believe it. But when you cut it with a chainsaw, it sprays a almost glowing chartreuse. Mm-hmm bright yellow sawdust yep. that's just incredible yep. they're beautiful and then they over time quickly they they kind of turn that honey golden brown but they go from a bright just yellow yeah yeah anyway incredible wood yeah and you can't stop that from happening it's gonna right it's gonna do the, that the light makes it change and the more that bow or that wood is out in the sun the darker it'll get yeah and those that are finished with a grease finish they seem to suck up those i don't know if it's ultraviolet rays that causes it or what but they tend to get darker faster yeah and they 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 really get a patina to them really quick that they age over and almost like a slick gym floor finish after about a year of using that grease yeah and that's just one treatment yeah i'll be darn yep um Tell me about your your hunting with these self bows. Um, what's your what's your favorite thing to hunt with them? You know, it changes all the time from what I hunted last, I guess. But for years, it was turkeys, and then it went to mm-hmm. antelope. Uh, I've killed a lot of antelope with these bows. Wow! Um, I was fascinated with them um, from the first time I went out west and seeing them out. You know, in the plains, they really fascinated me. But I've been fortunate to go from you know the northwest territories to to south africa and hunt everything in between what did you hunt up in northwest territories caribou back in the in the good the the end of the good days of caribou Um, i I was glad i did it when i did yeah and uh because the numbers aren't there now you know in fact a lot of the caribou camps uh out of Yellowknife and on up towards arctic circle they're not even in business anymore but yeah took two really good bulls with an osage self bow up there wow and um it's like hunting on the moon you know, it's all tundra, yeah. nothing higher than a rock as big as, a, you know, you couldn't even hide behind. You know, it's yeah. amazing, no cover. And when I got there, I thought, boy, you can't do it. And yeah. uh, But I had a good Indian guide, and uh, he knew their movement, but he didn't understand bows. Mm. And uh, he asked me when, he, when I got out of the plane, he said, can you run? I said, yeah, <laughs> I can run. And we ran. Now, <laughs> when those caribou would drop down in a in a drainage, we'd take off and this was a big tall indian and i mean he could cover some country (laughs) we we had a blast now we chased caribou for a week and and like i say killed two bulls with with, how close did you have to get to him one of them was about 40 yards further further than i wanted and that's where i say he didn't understand bows because the the bull was walking right at us i was hiding behind a rock and he was on the edge of a lake. He was going to walk right in front of me. And the thing's about 45 yards. And he starts yelling, shoot, shoot, shoot. And I didn't want to shoot that far. But the bull's standing there doing this, you know. And he knew we were there then. And I had to shoot him quartering to me at 40-something yards. And I put a, a Zwicky head. I was shooting Zwickies back then. Right on the point of his shoulder and dropped him in his tracks. It went through. Oh, broke, broke both shoulders and dropped him right there in his tracks. Wow. And he said he'd never never seen a, a bow hunter do that. But wow. it, it was uh, it, it, I was forced into the situation. It's, it wasn't an ideal situation. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the, the other bull, it was probably a 25-yard shot and it was wow. the last day 
and uh, he'd always pick the locations. And on, and I spotted those three bulls. He said, he almost like we knew this was it. He said, "Where do you want to get?" And I said, "It was like a terrace of rocks where the glaciers had pushed up these terraces." Huh. And I said, "Right behind them rocks." And we went up there and got behind them, and they fed right by us. And when the, the last one came by, he was the biggest, and I just raised up and just thumped him at twenty five yards. Wow, so it was cool. See, that's further than what I, I. I would have thought. What's your what's what what range do you usually want game in? You know, I want stuff twenty yards. I don't like it a whole lot closer. Really, you know, fifteen is good, but twenty, fifteen to twenty is my perfect. Okay, but um, I killed a bull, uh, not a bull, uh, a cow elk in uh, in New Mexico about five years ago, forty four yards. I'll be darned. And it was one of those deals where that's a little further than I like. Yeah, but um, they were coming down a trail. And there was a hole in that trail in the brush about the size of a five-gallon bucket. And it was right at the trail. And the, the elk were just filtering through there. So I knew I was either going to kill it or, or hit the brush and miss it. So right. it, it was eth- is ethical. Yeah. I see what you're saying. And, uh, and double under. You know, she went 40 yards, you know. Wow. So, you know, those are ideal situations. And I've killed whitetails, you know, in that range before. But these bows are so quiet. They If they're feeding they don't have a clue usually now if they're standing there hunting boogers like we were talking earlier yeah and on that african stuff that stuff is wired like you would not believe and the least my bows are super quiet but they can react so fast so i try to shoot at stuff that's unaware and uh because yeah. even at 15 yards on an animal that's aware they're gonna not gonna be where they were when you turned loose yeah so i lock them close yeah yeah yeah, that that's the most notable thing to me about shooting a self bow from going even from my traditional bows or the compound bows is how quiet they are. Absolutely, you you feel like uh, it's almost like shooting a gun with a silencer. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, you, you shoot a gun and boom, you, you the sound and everything translates into an equivalency of how dangerous that weapon is Mm -hmm. if i could say it that way i mean like you shoot a gun and you're like yeah that would kill something Mm -hmm. when you put a silencer on a gun and shoot it all of a sudden it feels like a toy almost it's Mm -hmm. like and it's all i've had that since i feel the same thing when i shoot a a a self bow yeah it's like you shoot it and that air is flying fast and thuds the target but you feel like you feel like nothing happened, you know, because I'm just used to yeah. twack, twack, and boy, you shoot a cell phone, it's just like, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, that being said, most of the game that you shoot is reacting to the sound of the weapon. It's not so much the hit. Right. I, I would almost bet most animals shot with a silencer or a suppressed rifle will die and fall quicker than those shot with one knot. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. The, the impact is the same. The energy is the same. And the same thing with these bows. Right. I've literally shot stuff that I don't think knew that it was hit. Mm-hmm. I shot a, bl- a black bear in Canada one time, and, and this was another one of those deals where I was forced into a long shot, and it was over 40 yards with the self-bow. But it was the only bait that that outfitter had that was active, and it was set up for a rifle hunter. Oh, I see. And I thought, well, maybe he'll wander by, you know, going to the bait, which was close to 45, 50 yards away. And I thought, yeah. I'm just wasting my time, but maybe he'll come under me going to the bait. Well, it didn't. It went right to the bait. And I had shot and shot that year. I was really ready. And um, it was so far away that that arrow passed through that bear. It jumped back, like, looked around, walked off, 
and then turned around and came back to the bait and fell over dead. Never never knew it was hit. It reacted to the arrow going on the ground, yes. you know, blowing through it, but it never heard the bow, of course, that far away. You know, I don't yeah. think it would anyway, but yeah. it, it's amazing the quietness of these bows, and you get quicker recoveries. A lot of the stuff you see fall. Yeah. Mm. Where yeah. with a compound or a crossbow even, you know, they're so loud that they're running from that noise of the weapon rather than the, the impact of the shot. Right, right. I've had the same experience with a with a traditional bow, a long bow that was pretty quiet, shot a bear, and he he jumped at the sting, you know, mm-hmm. and then just went back to feeding, just like, I don't even know what's happened here. Actually, that's happened multiple times now that I think about it. Yeah. And, uh, and then they just drop over yeah yeah <laughs> yeah they don't it, it slips through them so fast good way to go yeah it sure is um what have you got big plans this year well i was supposed to have been in africa but that all got canceled with uh with the the right. virus stuff but um i'm going to new mexico on an elk hunt here in a couple of weeks so oh, in, really? in, in october yeah. and then um basically that's it for the rest of this year um, next year I've rescheduled Africa and we'll go back there if, if things loosen back up and then probably a moose hunt with, uh, Gavin and Eric, they've got a new mo- okay. moose outfit up in, in Maine in Newfoundland. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They've, uh, I've hunted their tribal land there. And this, these are our buddies at, uh, Penobscot, Penobscot. Out, Outfitters. Guide Guide yeah. That's right. Yeah. In Maine. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They ha- they have a good bear operation. They're yeah. they're hard workers, but uh, they've got a new uh, moose and bear operation in Newfoundland that has some pretty good numbers. So that ought to be good. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I'm going to uh, I'm going to look up your uh, I want to look up your website here because I wanted to read off. Um, let's see. I want to read off what. Uh, uh, I want to I want to read off your web store. Okay, so you're Pine Hollow Longbows is who you are, and so this isn't a. I was just looking at this this morning. Um, let's see, native supplies. Okay, Colby, how many people that you know have a website that? Okay, I've gone to Pine Hollow Longbows, and I'm on the native supplies. Okay, well, here we have buffalo horns for sale, mm-hmm. cow horns, deer toes. Mm-hmm. For fifty cents a piece, full quill wild turkey tail feathers. Uh, we've got some napped arrowheads for fifteen hundred, fifteen dollars. <laughs> uh, stone point blanks, stone knives, tanned badger fur, tanned beaver fur, tanned beaver tails, tanned bobcat fur, tanned coyote fur, tanned gray fox, tanned mink fur, muskrat fur, possum, otter, coon, uh, turtle shells for five dollars each. Hmm. Yep. Uh, whole deer rawhide, whole deer, uh, wild turkey barge shoulder feathers. Um, yeah, and it, all kind of turkey feathers. This is pretty cool. What? Who? Uh, what are? What are people doing with turtle shells? Making Indian rattles out of them on the hand rattles. Oh, is that right? Some of it in the dance competitions, they'll use, uh, they'll stack them up on their legs and they rattle as they, hmm. as they dance. And that's the same thing with the deer toes. They, oh, really? That was my next question. Yeah, what are people doing with deer toes? You would not believe the sound of a dried deer toe that rattles against itself. They, uh, they have a sound. Like a string of deer toes? Yeah, they call it a bustle. And they'll put, I think, like 150 of them on there and they, 
drill a little hole through the tip of them, and it's just the the outside of the toe, just the black part of the deer toe, mm. and uh, they look like little black bells. And on those uh, in those dance competitions, there's different categories, and there's some that are historically correct, and they have some that are fancy. But uh, when they put those deer toes on their outfits to dance, it's the coolest sound you <laughs> ever heard. It's just I can imagine real neat, and we sell thousands of them. Have for years, I've got a huge company that uh, really has the niche for that business that I have supplied them for over twenty years. So mm. you're you're supplying the deer toes. Yeah, I'll be darned. Yeah, where how where how do you get deer toes? Packing houses here. You know they kill so uh, many deer around here that yeah. uh, that I've got a. You have to have a special permitting to sell. I've stuff. got a I've got a letter of exemption from the Game and Fish Commission because in their book it says that no part of the deer can be sold except for the antlers and the hide, and I'd been doing the sinew and the uh, and the I toes see. for years and years and. Uh, their lawyer, the guy that's in charge of all their legal terminology, sent me. He said the reason for the wording of that was people were selling deer jerky, and oh, so okay. they didn't want that. But he said mine is considered an off all or a waste product, and there's nothing wrong with the the, see. the sinew and the deer toe. So, mm -hmm. but I kept that letter of exemption to just have on file, you know, sure. in case it was ever mm -hmm. brought up. But yeah. yeah. So oh, that that makes total that's sense. Awesome. Yeah, that makes total sense. Now, Mike, you also tell me about your bow classes. Oh, they're a they're a blast. Yeah, I do group classes. You know, usually one or two a year. Sometimes we'll do them on location and do a hunt in the evening and build bows in the morning. But most time they're at my shop here in in Arkansas. Yeah, and uh, I'll do one on one, uh, and then I do the groups as well. The groups are okay if. Um, you like a crowd and then you can get uh, if there's 10 guys in that class you can get the problems that they will create you can see how I fix them yeah. and you can get a little bit more uh, hands on by doing that because usually somebody's going to mess up somewhere in the building and I have right. to fix it for them so you can see how that's taken care of on the one on one you get more personal attention yeah. and uh, I kind of control it where they don't have as much free time on their own and usually there's not much to correct but yeah yeah we do them at the class and so you got a you got a one-on-one -on -one, two-day self-bow class that people could could go on um you got a lot of different things here you got uh let's see you got a you got scheduled for 2021 a spring self-bow building workshop mm -hmm. um all this stuff's really affordable too when you think about how much you'd pay for a new bow i mean you can get a bow cheaper in the class or in a right. in one of those instruction courses then you could have me build you one yeah and then you get to so actually you, do it you can learn how to do it and get a bow well, i mean i'll just say what it is eight hundred dollars for a one-on-one -on -one class two mm -hmm. days with you come to arkansas and you're with them in a shop in in your shop building a bow and they come out with a bow with the bow and knowing how to do it Yep. Yeah, that's incredible. Rather than paying me twelve hundred to build them one, yeah. But yeah. there's some that just don't want to build a bow, you know, and, and right. that's okay. But there's some that want to learn how. Yeah, and um, a lot of them just do it as a vacation. I have guys that don't even hunt that'll come take a class because it's they like to do things with their hands and they look yeah. at it as a craft and a getaway. So yeah. you know, I don't care what they do with them. Hey, this is pretty cool too, Colby. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think uh, I think I'm going to send you down here for a. Uh, five-day predator trapping course in the ozark mountains with mike yancey oh, that'd be fun yeah 
mm-hmm. that you can come back up here and take care of all our predators yeah. on, the, on the estate here. In the estate. <laughs> <laughs> Those no, no, you got to. So you have a, a predator uh predator trapping class in texas and here yeah that people can come to and i mean for somebody that's wanting to learn how to trap man golly that is an adventure now yeah. i mean those, I those are it. my favorite to do because uh they get to watch me trap they learn how yeah. they get to to see from start to finish you know how to do it how to right. finish the hides yep. everything and mm-hmm. you know it's a uh, it, it's about as fun a vacation as a guy can take, and especially the Texas class, because w- we catch huge numbers of coyotes and cats. Mm-hmm, and yeah. you'd be exposed to more coyotes being caught in a five-day class there than you would be on your own in several mm-hmm. years. You know, right. we would catch big numbers. Yeah. Do you remember uh, years ago, you, uh, you're the one that taught me how to flesh coons. Do you yeah. remember that? Mm-hmm. When I came down there? And I had some, I had some coons, and we fleshed a bear hide too. Yeah, that was a booger. It was in the summer. It'd been too better. hot. It had been better in the winter time yep. when the fat was yeah gelled up. Yeah, that Just, hide turned out good though. Yep. Uh, actually, you know what? Those bear hide chaps. <laughs> you see those? Yeah, that's the bear. That's the bear. Wow. We uh, so I, I I took this raw bear hide down mm-hmm. to Mike, and we we fleshed it, and it was in May. I remember when it was. It was in May, and it was hot. Very and hot. the and the and the grease and you know it's best to do it when it's cool so that fat's a little bit more solid mm-hmm. and it was just a mess but we did it and we uh, spread the spread the hide out on a big sheet of plywood salted it mm-hmm. I brought it back home and I left it on that plywood stretched out salted it multiple times you know it rake the greasy salt off every couple of days put more salt on mm-hmm. finally got it to where the salt would stay dry after I put it on that hide. And then I sent it to, uh, who did I send it to? USA Fox? Yeah. Is that who? Probably or, so. Is that? Tannin Unlimited might have been back then. I was using them at one time, but USA yeah. Fox does them too. Yeah. But yeah. speaking of fleshing hides and stuff, stone knives, you would not believe how good a job you can really? do, do on a cape with a stone knife. Mm. Turning ears. You can't hardly cut them, but you can, uh, that serrated edge on that knife, you can just zip, 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 zip. Mm. When I'm up there in Maine with Gavin and them on their hunts, I always have to take care of my bears there, and we'll spread those things out, and I'll take a, a carry salt with me, and yeah. you can put that on there as you're doing it, and it helps you get a hold of it a little better. And then that stone knife will separate from the hide and the flesh. And uh, there was a taxidermist there watching me do it one time, and he was just amazed that huh. a, a stone knife blade will do better than a, a modern steel knife I'll be on, darn. on fleshing and caping. Hey, look at this. Somebody uh, gave this to me. Evaluate the craftsmanship on this for me. I just handed Mike a uh, a, a knife, a stone point knife. It's got a deer handle, deer horn handle, handle. It's got uh, white tail, white tail sinew, yep. and that's pine pitch. Pine pitch. Did he do a pretty good job? Yeah, it's all percussion work. You can tell that he the, made he made that too. As a my buddy down in Florida, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he he made that for me. Yep, and you can touch these up. You can take like a horseshoe nail or a finishing nail, and you can just pop little tiny flakes right on that edge, uh, and that thing will so, sharpen back up. But yeah. this right here would be perfect for fleshing a bear hide. I'm amazed when people come in here. Sometimes I'll randomly pull this out when I'm opening up a box or doing something. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm amazed at how sharp it is. I mean, I've I've used this for quite a bit of stuff, just around the office, just mm-hmm. randomly for cutting stuff. I probably do need to sharpen it. That's a good idea. It's easy to do. One of the bears that I killed in Canada one year, I kept the jaws, and I put an obsidian blade in one of the jaws and made a knife, and then went back the next year, and the bear that I killed the next year, I completely skint, gutted, and fleshed that whole bear with the the bear jawed knife hmm. from wow. from the bear that i'd killed the year before so it, it just adds something to it but it's yeah. effective i mean it will really yeah. work it's amazing how good that stuff will work yeah on a hide it is pretty incredible yeah, that's cool yeah well um you know i was gonna i was gonna say this earlier but just talking about primitive archery traditional archery when i first got into it probably the 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 thing that i had to become convinced of and it was just lack of knowledge lack of experience was the effectiveness of them as a killing tool absolutely they'll they'll do it i think i i had been uh marketed to Mm -hmm. and just didn't understand that uh that this wooden weapon you know because it and and my upbringing would have been in the 90s. I mean, we grew up shooting archery tournaments and all that when I was a kid. And so um, everybody was big into speed. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody was trying to shoot the fastest compound bow they could. And so that was the that was the theme of the age is speed is everything. Mm-hmm. And so you, you started seeing these guys that are shooting bows that were shooting 175 feet per second as opposed to, you know, high 200s or even over 300 feet per second back in those days was smoking fast. Mm-hmm. And you get this idea that, well, golly, if, if speed kills, then 175 feet per second probably probably wouldn't even, probably couldn't even kill a squirrel with it. Yeah. But that is the furthest thing from the truth. I mean, I've been amazed at just as a traditional archer, I mean, I've killed a lot of bears with a trad bow, total pass-throughs. Mm-hmm. I mean, very effective killing weapons. Sure. And uh, and just a unique and fun way to hunt, for sure. Yep. To me, that speed just equals a flat trajectory. It yeah. takes the yardage guessing out of it for you. Right. And that is a huge plus. Yeah. But with these bows, like you say... One reason I went to hunting with them so much and, and left the compound, the hardest thing for me to leave the compound alone was for turkeys because you can draw and hold so long yeah. and draw when you needed to and hold so long and let them walk into where you needed. And it was hard for me to give up that compound because I love to hunt turkeys with a bow. Yeah. But uh, And the hardest thing for me to kill with the traditional bows were the turkeys. Mm. And uh, it took me forever to get it done. And then once I did, I started killing them. But it, it's tough. But the main thing most of the stuff you kill around here is going to be inside of 20 yards just because yeah. of our thickness. So, you know, that's yeah. that's traditional and primitive bow range. So I thought, for sure. you know, why not just go ahead and carry them? And then once you start doing it, then you just start falling in love with it. But yeah. that they've all got their place, and definitely a compound has its place in, in my book for, for turkeys because I love to hunt yeah. with the bow. Now, when you when you shoot your bow, are you holding? Are no. You, so you describe to me your shot process. I, I'm almost a snap shooter, okay. but I will anchor. But I lock into a spot before I ever start the draw. I uh, I don't do this aiming and moving around like you see a lot of these guys do. I uh, I camp the bow, 
my form is uh, I point my left shoulder at what I'm shooting at, and I bend a little bit at the waist, and I lean my head in. But I have locked in my knuckle on my bow hand. I know where I want it on that animal, and I've picked the spot, and I lock into it right then. And if that animal moves, I've got to completely go through that process again because my mind has already made up where I'm going to shoot. And if he so moves, are you I can't saying move with you're, him. Are you saying you're kind of gap shooting? No, I don't gap, but it's a mental thing that my mind tells me where my hand needs to, my bow hand needs to be in relationship to the target. So in a way, it is gap, but I'm not like I saying, understand. I'm not saying he's 12 yards, my knuckle needs to be down here at his feet. You know, it's not that. It's just from years of locking in and total concentration. And, uh, it's purely instinctive because I don't use the point of the arrow in any way to to yeah. know to aim at. I'm conscious of the shaft. I, I'm lining up a point from the target to the tip of my arrow to the back of my arrow, and I try to get those three lines lined up yeah. mentally and physically. And then I come to a, I put my middle finger in the corner of my mouth, and I've already, like I say, I've already locked in on one the spot. finger over two under. Yes, I, okay. I shoot split. I cannot shoot three under with a tab i just don't like it at all and it makes the bows noisier but for me it just don't work i just feel like i've got more control with the split mm. uh grip like that but uh and then I've, I've locked in and as soon as that middle finger comes to my mouth that that arrow's on its way and i try to consciously follow through with the shot not give into it to look and see where it's going i try to stay in that form till the arrow hits and and it's a big mental game it, it's time. it's a huge mental game, and I, I I saw that in Africa the last trip. It's uh, it's so total focus, you know, that uh, it's hard in a three D tournament to shoot eighteen targets or whatever and be very focused on every one of them. You know, it's uh, it's you know you're going to hit it, you'll hit it. If you hope you're going to hit it, you usually don't. Yeah. So you've got to be. Uh, it, it's as much mental, I believe, as it is physical. Yes. After a point. Oh yeah, I think so. And it's, how did the how did the Cherokees shoot? I I guess that they shot the same way. You know, okay. I I don't know that they did any differently. You know, okay. um, I know uh, I know Ishi, um, he shot. You know, the Ishi was the was the supposedly one of the last mm -hmm. Native Americans in California that lived like Native Americans lived for. Yeah, ten thousand years, and he—he's um, the one that taught Saxon Pope and Art Young how to make self bows, and he was shooting like like had a real odd grip with his thumb. He <laughs> used the knuckle of his thumb, didn't he? Or how did how did he? He, he had. Do you remember? He had a pinch track grip, but he pulled to his chest. That's right. And but most how of those, did they? How most did that of those make sense? Most of those Western Indians did that because they were shooting shorter bows. They had a shorter draw length. They they were only they were shooting real stout little short bows, and most of their arrows were probably only twenty two inches. They were probably pulling them you maybe can, I just can't Imagine how you could be real accurate by. So what we're doing, what we're shooting, is we're pretty much drawn to a line. Almost directly. I mean, like when I shoot three fingers under, I'm almost putting the arrow underneath my eye. You sure. know, I mean, yeah. the better right down it. But split finger, the arrow is a little bit lower on your mouth, but still, you're looking just right over the top of that arrow. Yep. And these, uh, and like Ishi, he, he was his anchor point was, you know, eight nine inches below his eye, mm -hmm. like down in his chest. Yeah. Anyway, I just can't imagine how they could have been accurate very far. I, I think probably. 
and I can do that to a point with those little Indian bows, you know, playing with them. And there's days that you can just knock a ball all over the yard, and there's days that you couldn't hit a, a beach ball. You know, <laughs> I mean, you just have good days and bad days when you're shooting that type of shot. But maybe they were closer. But on the Cherokees, I almost think they had a, their way of living, their way of shooting bows, their way of building bows was very European style. And I'm almost wondering if they didn't have some connection mm. back then. You know, they lived in settlements, uh, permanent housing, uh, right. farmed, everything. And yeah. as far back as they can trace it. And the way they shot bows and the way they built bows was European style. Yeah. So it makes you wonder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think if you woke up every day and your only option for acquiring wild protein for your family was shooting a bow, mm -hmm. you'd probably figure out a way to get real get good, good at it. I mean, mm -hmm. really, you think about the amount of effort that we put towards proficiency with a weapon. Even as serious bow hunters like you and I are, we really devote a pretty small amount of time. And, I mean, and, and there's people that practice way more than I do, I mm -hmm. know for sure. But, I mean, like, if we woke up every day mm -hmm. and that's the only way we were going to eat breakfast the next day was if we killed something and we were walking around with a bow in our hand all the time, every day, every day of the year, we'd probably get, you'd probably get pretty good at whatever you did. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, they, they would have, uh, I mean, they were, you know, to say they were professional hunters is kind of a weird way to look at it, but they were. I yeah, mean, that's how they made a living, and, and so I'm, they were. You know, I, I guess that's another way to to try to understand how they could be pretty accurate shooting, kind of an you know what seems to us as an obscure, ineffective way, because we're trying to take this little narrow window of our life that we've dedicated to be archers, and we found, hey, if you draw it right to your eye, you hmm. can look that right down the arrow, and it can be pretty good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, something. Colby, what questions do you have? You've been too <laughs> quiet. Got a couple. What is there a bow in particular that you're most like proud of that you've made? Like one that sticks out among others? Yeah, I've got a couple. Uh, one is a Cherokee style bow that I made years ago. That's uh, just a bear grease finish. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't even have a, a rest on it. I built it to shoot off your knuckle. I've mm -hmm. since added a piece to it, but I've killed more deer with that bow than. Than I have any bow I've gotten. It's as simple as you can get. Yeah. And then uh, I came up with a design about um, I don't know six or eight years ago, and I call it a deer slayer. <laughs> and uh, it's a, a form that I built. It's got it reflexes at the handle and then deflexes a little bit and then reflexes back into the tips. And I send you back it. Yeah. And those are a, a very good performer. They're mm -hmm. really quiet. And uh, that's the bow that I've been hunting with mostly the last several years. I've killed a, a lot of stuff in Africa with that model, mm -hmm. and they've been really good bows. Yeah. Now, when you say send you back, describe that. I know what it is, mm -hmm. but people may not. What uh, I, I use whitetail sinew, mostly the backstrap sinew, because that's I can get it. Uh, for years, I just use leg sinew, but it's a tendon. And right. it can be off a of deer, elk, moose, it don't matter, buffalo. And you dry it, hammer it, process it, and then put it on by weight. Uh, so that, it's, it's, it peels off in these It's like strips. a natural fiberglass. And yeah. then you glue it onto the bow, and it adds performance as well as durability. Because yeah. that, as that sinew shrinks, you put it on wet, and then it'll dry to the bow right there, and then it starts shrinking. 
Yeah. And then as it shrinks, it adds speed to the bow because it's already under tension. Yeah. Golly. That's incredible stuff. It's incredible to think about there was a time when humans didn't know how to do that. And there was a time when they did. Mm-hmm. And like what what I wonder what process informed someone that, hey, you can take that piece of take that, that deer. chewy stuff. Because yeah. there, there would be no logical connection between that silver skin off of a backstrap and everybody that's killed a deer and's processed the deer knows what we're talking about. I mean, it, it feels, I mean, like you could like cut it up and like chew it and eat it. I mean, like it's like, I mean, you wouldn't, but I mean, point mm-hmm. is it's not like hard or something. It's not a bone. It's not yeah. even, it's not cartilage. It's just this, uh, you know, just this super odd miracle substance mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. propped up mankind for a long time. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's pretty incredible. The Plains Indians relied on it because they had lesser quality wood, you know, and it will yeah. allow you. It, it's not a it's not a magic cure to bad quality wood or short wood, but it is in a way because it will allow you to use inferior quality wood hmm. that normally would not make a bow. Okay, and it will make a good bow. In the right climate. In our climate where it's humid and wet, it's just mediocre. Out west where it's dry, it is superior. Because you can take a juniper Mm. that will explode on you if you try to make a self-bow out of it. But you can put a sinew back into that juniper and make a rocket launcher. I'll be darned. And it's it's amazing. And Mm. if if it's tillered well, and that means if it's bending evenly and everything's right, that they'll last from now on you know mm-hmm. do you so, think the uh eastern indians judge the western indians for using technology to their advantage <laughs> well you know they traded them osage so they wanted our wood you know yeah. that was a huge trade item was osage stave or if they sat around the fire and made fun of the guys that you <laughs> send you back wood <laughs> yeah like man training wheels look at those boys over there they don't <laughs> well, they make fun because their bows were little look, yeah. how, look how little his bow is yeah and theirs were lo- ours were long yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I bet they did, man. Sure I bet enough. they did. Nothing's changed. It yeah. really hadn't. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. Well, uh, do you have anything that you still want to try that you haven't yet? Like, you've done all this all this stuff in the past and had all these challenges and things you worked through. Insightful is there, question. Yeah, ahead. is there something, like, coming up that you would like to try or a challenge you would like to? Uh, I still hadn't got a moose killed with a bow and uh, i'll probably do that and um i still got a lot of african animals that i want to do mm-hmm. and, and i've got that all in the works um i'm working on a book right now in the early stages of a book at, that um and it's kind of an adventure type deal of all the hunts that i've been on my life with these type of bows and then i'm going to also incorporate the the building of them so it'll kind mm-hmm. of it'll give a little bit of uh the construction and try to pass on that challenge you know uh if a guy ever read that book uh the history of hunting in the great smoky mountains have you read that Mm -mm. i've heard of it i've seen it i've never read it It, those guys those gun builders and bear hunters they were characters now they uh they're a unique breed and they uh they hunted a lot of bears and stuff with those flintlock rifles that they built, right. and um, that stuff fascinates me. So mm-hmm. I've got some stuff that I'm doing. So with you some also flintlock. make flintlock rifles? Yeah, I see the beauty in them, just like I do a, a wood bow. I don't, yeah. I don't distinguish 
uh, a kill with them any different than stuff that yeah. uh, the bows that i've made with, with the guns that i made there yeah the wood and iron is uh it's pretty yeah and they're again you know we we won some wars with them you know they uh yeah they started progressing you know towards the end of the or the beginning of the civil war they kind of went to the percussion guns but before that it was flintlocks and uh those are they're very very accurate you know 100 yard guns you know that mm. that's it you know but uh, there's some guys that can can shoot some of them a little further but yeah they're uh weather might slow you down a little bit but they're fast people think that you shoot pull the trigger and that flint goes down and two minutes later the gun goes off that's not <laughs> yeah. the case you know when yeah. they're made right they're very fast and effective yeah so it's just a fun way to do it all right now you had a last you killed something last year with your flint lock didn't you mm, let's see i'm just remembering you with a or maybe you'd made a gun that you were gonna hunt with it seems like it was last year maybe not but yeah i've killed a lot of stuff with them i've killed black bears um with the flint locks lots of whitetails um yeah. turkeys uh, uh rios easterns and merriams i'd have a grand slam with a flint lock and a recurve if i could go to florida and kill kill, uh, kill those turkeys <laughs> i hadn't killed a, an osceola down there with a with a recurve or a flint lock but i'd have a yeah a grand slam with that so i like to yeah. mix it all up yeah and the thing about it the with the flint locks i go back now and stuff that i've killed with bows i'm going back and doing it again with the black powder you know yeah. so it adds gives you another reason to go somewhere and hunt again you you feel like you're uh you you're carrying a rifle i guess well and you are it, it does make it a little easier yeah it it increases my range a whole lot compared to a self bow yeah so yeah it's almost like cheating yeah uh, yeah now was it great. the the bow making that got you into trapping the trapping got me into the bow making really uh, okay yep yeah. i've missed one season since i was 13 i've got 40 some odd seasons of trapping that mm-hmm. I, I was just fascinated with it from the time i was a little bit of kid and it never yeah. left and and now like i say i get to travel different states and mm. uh, that was always a goal when i was unable to do it because of work you know i couldn't get away long enough to go out of state and see if i could you might there's guys that are really good at what they do where they're at but you get them somewhere else and they're like a fish out of their bowl you know yeah and um i think trappers if you will notice are usually your best turkey hunters and a lot of times your best bear hunters and fishermen they they have a they they can read they notice things that most people don't notice you know they're yeah. just constantly aware of the surroundings because you're trying to make an animal put his foot in about a four inch circle and he's got thousands of acres to run in and that yeah. bait's only going to work for so long and it's just like bear baits uh there's no magic bait or lure you know you got to be close yeah. and get it in the yeah. right spot to start with yeah. so it's um there's a lot involved in that. That's something that I really took a lot of pride in. Yet you ask about the bows that I might like, mm-hmm. but I think probably more so the ability to go somewhere else and be good at what you're doing, whether it be with a bow or trapping. It all kind of goes hand in hand. Mm-hmm. That once you master that trapping, it seems like everything else just falls into place, and you have an understanding of those animals and how everything's got a weakness too Mm -hmm. and uh and especially with trapping you're trying to exploit that and know their habits because uh there's things that you can do to get the odds in your favor to make him put his foot where you want it Mm -hmm. and uh the ranches that i trap around here 
those guys would probably cry if I quit coming because they're seeing over the years now the increase of their game, you know, especially their turkey crops. Yeah. That, uh, and I think the coyotes are a lot bigger problem on the deer than people give them credit for, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That uh, the deer and turkeys are really making a difference. And um, I've got my foot in the door in some ranches in Texas now that it's almost more than I can handle to to take care of those ranches there because of the demand for predator control. I'll be darned. And it's there's nothing more fun to me than to outsmart a coyote. Yeah, yeah. that's a ton neat. of fun. It is. Yeah, I'll be darned. Well, what's uh? Did you ever make uh much money trapping? I mean, like. Arkansas is not El Primo no, for density. Yeah. It's not so much the density, it's the quality. And we're right on the very edge. If you get much past the tunnel, on very much further in my direction, the quality starts going down, especially if you go south. Now, if you go west, it's still good. But we're on the very edge of still good quality fur. Is that right? Yes. And Even down to that? He's Even talking about... Uh, 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 the tunnel is a is where a interstate goes through about twelve miles, probably south of right here. So you're saying north of there, the fur is better. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a different, whole different ball game. But uh, yeah, we're still on the edge of good fur. But yeah, as far as making money, the the first year that I left the meat business and retired and did uh, the bow business full time nine years ago, I my wife and I decided that we were gonna trap as hard as i ever wanted to and the fur prices had been terrible since the 90s and they didn't come mm-hmm. back up you know they crashed right. and it just never came back up and we were doing it just purely for fun and to be able to do it because that's what i wanted to do and i hit it on it was just the perfect storm the the market exploded and i had a fur shed full of fur and we actually sold ten thousand dollars worth of fur that one year mm-hmm. and um and it was good for another year or two after that. Yeah, that's all just local trapping down here. That in, was then in Arkansas. Yeah, then. But now, like I say, I'm I'm doing other states. Right. But the stuff that I'm catching out in Texas now, it's in North Texas, and it's as good quality as a lot of the Western states. You know, really for cats and quality wise. Yes, you would not. It's like two different animals if you look at our bobcats compared to those why? North Texas fur quality. But why? I don't know if it's altitude, and some of it is uh, they've adapted over the years to the terrain. Their spots are better than ours. You can okay. even go so with a bobcat. A lot of it has to do with the with spots. their location. Yeah. Well, but but the hide quality has to do with not just fur, but spots on cats. Yeah, because people sure. want spots. Yes, and you can even go in to parts of western Oklahoma, and their their bobcats are way better than ours. Hmm. These wood woodland bobcats are the worst in the world they have terrible what makes them worse spots the spots the quality of spots okay so it's not fur density not so much but even out there in texas would it be that open country more open country cats need better camouflage absolutely okay well that's it they're in that sage and uh in that open brush and they need more spots yep and they do have longer fur. It is more dense, but their quality of spots is way, way better. And the the fact that a bobcat is worth more when it has spots, it's totally a human external characteristic that we desire. That's the for demand whatever. they want. So they're ma- where do you know where the bobcats are going and what they're doing with them? Most of the market is like in Italy, Germany, 
Um, what are they making? Just women's coat, garments coats, and some yeah, vests and coats. Like the coyote trade, it's most of most of it is for trim. Uh, on yeah, parka collars and stuff, yes. Yeah, but the cats are still actually for for like jackets and stuff like that and vests. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. And, uh, the Korea, China, when they're in Russia, m- Russia because it's a it's not just a luxury item; it's a, it's a necessity item because of their cold, cold winters that they still wear a lot of fur every day. Because of right. needing it, I've yeah. heard that's where a lot of coons and stuff go. Is it yep. is in uh, in Russia? Yep. They're, yeah. And in when their the economies Asian are markets. bad, yeah. And the, when when the Soviet economy's bad and the Asian markets are bad, the fur fur market's bad. Yeah. And so you know it'll all come back. That year that you made or you sold ten thousand dollars worth of hides. Do you remember how many animals? And I'm interested in this because I live here and I'm just like. Did, like, do you remember how many coons you caught? How many this you caught? No, I don't. It was a lot of coons that year. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, would it have been like a hundred coons, or would it have been like oh, over, a thousand coons? No, not like a thousand. No, it would have been in the hundred coons. You know, and on a mix of coyotes, bobcats, and fox. You know, looking at uh, twenty-five of each probably, and on the cats, maybe. Uh, I only in Arkansas, I catch about six cats, bobcats a year. Okay, but you go out to Texas, you can catch that many in a week. Yeah, you know, and so it's just the numbers. They're, uh, I don't know what the deal is out there. Their densities are just ridiculous. There's just more and, of them. Yeah, and part of it might be because those places are so managed for deer, turkey, and quail that it brings them in because they've got a food source. Yeah, and that probably is a lot of the case because they're hanging around those feeders to ambush. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they kind of got a captive audience. But mm-hmm. yeah. The West has always been known for having lots of coyotes. It just seems to be that way. They've got coyotes yeah. like we have coons. Mm. You know, my buddy uh, Jeff Lander told me a story, and I don't know if this is exactly the way it happened, but it's the way I remember it. And he shot a turkey over a feeder in Texas mm-hmm. uh, with a traditional bow. And as the turkey like fled from being shot with a bow, a bobcat jumped out of the woods and... Mm. Jeff, if I'll have to get the, that, it it was it was either it was some yeah anyway just yeah. to to and he felt like the bobcat was perched back in watching this turkey they just do. like him he's mm-hmm. over in a blind yeah you know um and uh, anyway it's a learned behavior out there and that's what we look for out there they have limited roosting areas. And they're usually going to be in those branch bottoms where there's some big cottonwoods where they have roost trees. And those turkeys out west, they will, each gobbler kind of goes his direction with his little bunch of hens, you know, and they, they kind of go like wagon wheel routes that they've just, they do it every day. They're patternable where ours are just wherever they're at that day. But those birds out there have a route that they'll kind of make a circle during the day. And you can find those ambush spots where those bobcats will ambush those turkeys in the brush and that's what we're looking for out there are those travel routes for the turkeys to ambush the bobcats when they're trying to catch the turkeys mm. it's just a oh, it's a it's a neat deal yeah huh. that trapping class would be fun it, it, it really is we yeah. start at daylight and don't get done skinning till dark we, mm. we we check traps and set till an hour or so before dark and then we're usually skinning till way after dark mm-hmm 
Yeah. So it's it's work, but it it's exciting. Yeah. A lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, it would. Oh, Mike, where can people find you? How can people find you? Best ways on the website, and it's just pinehollowlongbows.com. Yeah. And, of course, we got a Facebook. But, yeah, the website's easy. And, and like I say, we're a full-time business. It's uh, not just a hobby. It's a hobby that turned into a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's uh, it's a way of life. So I I help people that's never built bows before, you know, every day right. on the phone. So I don't mind a little bit of helping along there. You know, I'm not going to build it for them, but, right. but I'm there for – for questions that's one thing when you buy a piece of wood from me it's uh it's not i'm not just for a one-time sale i'm there to to get you through the, yeah. the whole process and try to encourage you to get it done and, and go use it that's that's what yeah. i want to see you do yeah mm-hmm. yeah you're cool. it's clear that you're really passionate about about teaching mm-hmm. and you you enjoy that and and that's what it takes i mean that's what makes a good teacher somebody that that enjoys it and wants people to learn yeah and uh so yeah that that's great, and it, you know, I don't think I, I don't think many people know that this kind of stuff exists. So, you know, there's a if you 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 could learn you could learn more from you either in a trapping class or a bow class, and just a short period of time than you could in years of personal research. The bow class, especially, will save you. You know, m- most people can eventually club one out, you know, and get it done. Yeah, y- you might wreck your shoulder and never be able to shoot the rest of your life if you shot it for a year but uh but it'd sling an arrow and that's yeah. that's what surprises me people could literally cut a limb off one of these osage trees you got in your yard and tie a hay string to it and if they'll shoot an arrow across the yard they're tickled to death but they don't realize <laughs> they can build an efficient high performance weapon out of primitive materials and that's where i can save them a lot of trial and error and breaking stuff yeah in a short time yeah great well mike is there anything we hadn't talked about that you'd like to no i think we pretty much covered it just don't uh don't limit your opportunities man there's so many things that a guy can do with uh not everybody can travel and and go a lot of places if their family's young you know they're kind of held tight but uh, like we were talking before we started this podcast, making one of these bows yourself and then going and hunting on your grandpa's place behind his barn or something and killing a white-tailed doe can be as big right. as any caribou hunt you ever went on in your life. And and literally, they add up to if – I, if I look back at the big hunts that I've been on, the uh, the preparation – and the, the the full circle completion of it is as important to me as the adventure, the exoticness of it. You know, Africa's yeah. great. It's target rich. But still, you know, killing something in Alabama with a, a bow that I made on a friend's ranch is as much fun as any big hunt, you know, you yeah. can do. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And I think anybody that's hunted with a, any kind of a primitive weapon, they would get it. Because they've they've mm-hmm. done it themselves, but you know, for me, traditional archery brought back kind of the initial excitement and love of archery that probably I had more when I was a kid when I just got into it. Absolutely, and and you know, we still have that same thrill. All of us that are passionate hunters, you know that that thrill of hunting, even the mundane parts of hunting. You know, that's why we are serious is because we continue to enjoy it it doesn't get old but 
man, hunting with primitive weapon takes something like hunting a doe in your backyard and turns it into an extreme, extremely exciting, extremely rewarding hunt. It does. It puts that fire back in it. And um, on the flintlock stuff, you know, we all grew up hunting squirrels and learning how to be good in the woods and stuff. Most of us started on squirrels, you know, and that was our big thing when we were kids to be able to do that. And I did that as a kid and then quit when I started deer hunting, you know, as as I got older. But when I started making these flintlocks, I, I built a 36 Tennessee-style rifle. And those little 36s are just like shooting a 22 Magnum that smokes. Uh-huh. The, there's no kick, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they're deadly accurate. And it is my, my favorite thing to do right now is as soon as the ticks get gone <laughs> is yeah. to go out with that 36 flintlock and shoot mm. gray squirrels you know yeah. it's li- it you're like a little kid again i mean coming in with a string of squirrels with the flintlock oh, is wow. that's <laughs> so a, much fun that's yeah. an achievement it's exciting that's an achievement that'd be yep. awesome so have some fun yeah mm-hmm. that's great well thanks mike i really appreciate it i've enjoyed it and uh and i hope people check you out check your website out and um yeah, just just let it be an option for them sure. to uh, to to get into some primitive types of, of archery, flintlock. Yeah, Mike's a great resource for that. So thanks for coming up, man. You're yeah. welcome. Enjoyed it. Keep yeah. the wild places wild because that's where the bears live. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.